9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Coming to us from uh, Washington, D.C., uh, we have, of course, Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you doing, Corey? I'm exceedingly well. Thank you, David. Excellent. And uh, also joining uh, from uh, Washington, D.C., I assume, uh, we have uh, Aaron David Miller, who's of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, formerly at the State Department. Um, uh, he is a CNN Global Affairs Analyst, and his most recent book is End of greatness, the end of greatness, why America can't have and doesn't want another great president. Hi, Aaron. Hey, Dave, how are you? And uh, in Alexandria, Virginia, it's I see, yeah, no, I recognize the furniture. We have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. How are you today, Rosa? I am very well, David. Glad to be here with you all. Um, excellent. And not too far from here in a different part of New York State. We have award-winning journalist and author Rula Jebriel. How are you, Rula? Hi, David. Um, Rula also has a book coming out called The Colors of Change, which is available now in Italian, French, and Spanish, and hopefully soon in English, maybe in the fall. So congratulations on that, Rula. Thank you. Uh, so what I thought we would do is start with a little bit it's inappropriate to call it uh, an after-action report, but we've gone through a cycle of crisis um, in the Middle East. These kinds of cycles um, uh, have uh, occur with regularity, um, and they have uh, sidetracked many a U.S. presidency, and, and they've not produced a whole heck of a lot in the way of progress in the region. I just thought that since we have a ceasefire that... Uh, uh, went into effect at the end of last week. And so we've lived through sort of this part of this cycle. Um, it's a good time to look back on it, particularly since we have two great Middle East experts. Let me start with you, Rula, as you look back, is anything different? Did anything change? Uh, yes and no. Uh, we are, um, after four years of Trump presidency, and the whole idea, the pivot in Middle East, in, especially in the approach to the Middle East where we, uh, the Trump Kushner had in their mind, which is we build the bridge, we dismiss the Palestinian, uh, Palestinian people demands for uh, equality, for human rights, for, for sovereignty, and we start negotiating with some Arab dictators. And uh, basically we bypass them and think, it does, you know, the Palestinian issue is dead. So they created this idea that if you negotiate with Arab capitals um, or that you bribe them and you give them some weapons, you give them some, you know, concede on several issues, that basically ultimately the Palestinian issue will die down and nobody will care. They underestimated three, four factors that by doing so, it emboldened uh, not only in Israel, but, but elsewhere, everywhere. Uh, it, it, what happened with extremists 
that now are becoming so mainstream, uh, where you have the Kahanis movements that used to be considered a terrorist organization and every spin-off of that movement, you have some of their leaders now are in the parliament in Israel. They have uh, people who are elected in office in Jaffa, in, in places like Jerusalem, the deputy mayor of Jerusalem, the deputy mayor and mayors of, of Lod. And, and the violence is expanding. And now the conflict controls everything in Israel and every aspect of daily life. And this is the new reality. This is the one state reality that uh, Bibi Netanyahu fought for all of his life. This is how it looks like where you have communal violence inside Israel, where you have in Jerusalem, inside the old city, uh, mobs screaming and violence and death to Arabs and, and, and then people dancing. Uh, and, and, and basically the incitement is becoming so, not only the norm, it's becoming what is required of certain politicians to survive politically, but also to have a voice in the media. And what worries me the most, David, it's after uh, 14 years of blockade in Gaza, four wars and all the destruction that we have zero results. Like there's no whatsoever any kind of vision to what to how to deal with Gaza or how to deal with Hamas. But also there's nothing. The outcome is zero. There's nothing uh, except death and destruction and desperation. Aaron. Um, you know, you pose two separate questions. Um you might argue that they intersect, but I'm not sure. Is anything new and will anything change? Um, I think there are things that are new, uh, despite the wash, rinse, and repeat cycle of a conflict between Israel and Hamas, 2008, 09, 2012, and 2014, which went on for 51 days. And so anywhere from 22 to 2,300 Palestinians killed, 67 Israeli soldiers and a half a dozen civilians. Is anything new? Yes, I think there are several factors that are new. Number one, the multi-front nature of this conflict with respect to the Israel Hamas arena, we have not seen before. It started with a, a number of provocative, reckless, and irresponsible Israeli decisions in Jerusalem. Hamas took advantage of it on Monday ago by launching rockets, but it also prompted I mean, over 30 Palestinians were shot to death in the West Bank, although the West Bank did not erupt. The real feature that is most intriguing and most depressing, and Rula can speak to this better than I can, is the Arab-Jewish and uh, Arab-Jewish violence within Israel proper. We haven't seen, well, you've never seen in the state period that kind of violence. 2000, yes, 13 Arab citizens of Israel, Palestinian citizens of Israel were shot to death by Israeli security forces in the context of the second intifada. But what we saw in a half a dozen mixed cities, driven, abated, I mean, driven, uh, although the, the reasons that it exploded, um, systemic economic and social discrimination, under policing by the Israelis, not taking the issue of crime seriously enough in the, in the Palestinian community inside of Israel, too many guns, too many firearms, um, extremist groups bust in, from outside. Um, that's new. And we haven't seen anything like that in the state period. In the pre-state period in the 20s and 30s, yes, but not since. Where that goes, it is intriguing. At the same time, you have that sort of conflict. You have a rare moment of integration, perhaps, 
Uh, Abbas Mansour, the head of, head of Ram, was involved in serious negotiations with the Change Coalition. It would have been the first time in Israel's political history that a uh, an Arab party, uh, whether it was supported the government government from the inside or outside, remained to be seen. But there was serious discussion. So I th I think that's uh, not just a headline. I think it's arguably a trend line, and that's something to watch. I would only add one additional comment. Rule has painted a very grim picture, and I I have having left government. 20 years ago, my analysis of this problem has become consistently and annoyingly negative, in large part because of what I see on the ground. And while I haven't given up hope, most of the illusions I maintained when I was working on this issue are gone. I would only say this, that every breakthrough in this conflict, without exception, every one, was preceded by insurgency, violence, and war. 73 war produced three disengagement agreements, which Kissinger orchestrated and paved the basis for Sadat's trip to Jerusalem. Um, the first intifada convinced Rabin that the Palestinian problem could not be solved militarily, and it created a political pathway which ultimately failed. Heroic effort nonetheless. And Madrid, which I know well, um, was preceded by Saddam's invasion of Kuwait and the first Bush administration's efforts to push Saddam out of Kuwait. But in several of those cases, you had something that is not present today, which is you know, the L word, leadership. Unless you have an Israeli and Palestinian leader and someone in Washington too, I might add, who are masters of their political houses, not prisoners of their ideologies or their constituencies, and are willing to stretch for reasons that may have nothing to do with morality or ethics. Begin saw Sadat's visit as a way to trade Sinai to keep the West Bank and Jerusalem in perpetuity. So, um, we, and we don't have that. It's nowhere to be seen, frankly. And that is the one factor in all this. And the, on the American side as well, by the way, that's the one factor I think that is missing. And that's the one thing that depresses me the most and virtually ensures that we're going to remain trapped between a two-state solution that's still too important to abandon, I think, on one hand, but too impossible to implement on the other. That's the space we're going to operate in for the foreseeable future. Corey. Uh, so I, too, am deeply pessimistic. Uh, I'm not sure it's fair to blame the Trump administration for the mainstreaming of the settler movement in Israel. It looks to me like it predated the Trump administration, although they certainly emboldened the hard right in Israel. Um, one thing I think is different that hasn't yet been mentioned is the overt disinterest of the Gulf Arab states, either for the outcome for Palestinians or for the pressure on Jordan which seems to me extreme at the moment. I, I agree that intercommunal violence in Israel feels new to me. Uh, I can't tell whether Netanyahu cynically manipulated this to try and change the electoral equation, uh, but it looks to me like it might change the electoral equation to Netanyahu's benefit uh, when the 37th Israeli election of the last two years gets held. Um, 
one thing that didn't change and it makes it feeds my despondency about either greater uh, human rights for Palestinians or greater political receptivity among Israelis is the extent to which the Israeli defense forces think what happened in the last several weeks is a victory for them. That is, you know, they were proudly tweeting about being almost out of targets and the disinterest, as Rula thought very nicely expressed, the disinterest by others of, uh, of the cost to Palestinians of what's happening, but also the changing, um, I think neither the American, the Biden administration nor the Israeli body politic writ large appreciate how much um, sympathy for Israel has declined because of, you know, the IDF proudly talking about it running out of targets and destroying the skyscraper that Al Jazeera and other press um, organizations were in. Uh, I do think there is one thing that is changing is uh, American receptivity to Israeli arguments. I think it's narrowing more and more to evangelical Christian support away from Jewish American support, away from more broadly um, Democratic Party and, and broad public support. And that I think is due in part to the Trump administration's um, disinterest in the decision, the consequences of their decisions for Palestinians but also has to do with Netanyahu's uh, similar behavior and similar disinterest in consequences for Palestinians. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, by the way. And I, I wanna come back, I'm gonna have a question for each one of you, but you know, I, I did see a story today about the high-tech Israeli command center beneath Tel Aviv, you know, in which there are all these targeting people and they're doing all this stuff. And, I, and I, I thought to myself, do these guys even have the slightest notion of how this plays in the rest of the world? They are so tone deaf. They are still, you know, my old college roommate, Michael Oren, the former ambassador to the US was on Andrea Mitchell a couple of days ago. And, and he was just offering 1980s vintage defenses, totally clueless totally out of touch with all these changes that have taken place in the United States. It's really stunning. Rosa, what's yeah, I was going to pick up on exactly that last point that Corey made, you, you were discussing. I, I think it's, we were talking about this a little bit last week, that not only is there a, a shift and a decline in sympathy for the Israeli arguments uh, amongst the general public in the United States, but but more specifically, I think we're seeing a, a sharp decline in support for those arguments within the Democratic Party itself. And the best evidence for that, uh, we just saw coming out in the last couple of days, an open letter to President Biden signed by more than 500 people who worked on his campaign uh, calling for what, uh, although you know, many Palestinian rights activists I don't think would view as particularly radical, but within the context of US politics, I think is a pretty radical list of 
of, uh, I, I wouldn't call them demands, I think the, the tone of the letter is very polite, but, but the, the things that the group of signatories, all of them again affiliated with President Biden's election campaign are, are, are urging uh, range from uh, uh, humanitarian corridor uh, protecting Palestinian civilians, uh, also protecting Palestinians within Israel who've been subject to hate crimes and attacks, lifting the blockade of Gaza, ending the expansion of settlements, but also uh, uh, ceasing to obstruct efforts by the United Nations to call for an end to Israel, Israeli violations of international law, uh, ensuring that US aid does not go to oppress the Palestinians, investigating whether the Leahy law should prohibit US military aid to Israel, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a, that's a, a list of suggestions that I don't think would have all been mainstream within the democratic foreign policy establishment, uh, you know, even three or four years ago, um, much less 10 years ago. And, and I do think we talked about this a little bit during our last podcast um, on this subject. Uh, we are seeing uh, in part a real generational shift within the foreign policy establishment in which younger people coming in just do not share the same assumptions of the, of the older generation. It will be really, interesting to see what, if any, impact this has on President Biden's decision-making and those of his closest advisors, because I do think that if they do not take fairly decisive action to demonstrate that Israel does not have a blank check to use American money and American-supplied weapons to, to do whatever they want, uh, that they will face more and more opposition from within, uh, as well as external opposition. Yeah, no, no, no question about that. And by the way, it's not just generational change or situational change, the end of the Cold War, the end of dependence on Mideast oil, the end of the war on terror. But, you know, Bibi Netanyahu made a choice. He said, I'm going to go with the Republicans against the Democrats. And yeah. he did it over yeah. and over and over again, had a consequence. So I have a question, specific question for, for each one of you. Rula, I'd like to pick up on this theme of political change. Um, Aaron mentioned the... Um, this 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 new factor of protest and conflict within Israel um, and mobilization on on both sides. You had mentioned the extreme right, but also also the engagement of many more civilians within the country. What, what do you think that's about, and what do you think the consequence of that is? So two two three things. I think there's an erosion of international norms. And, and I believe, and I know, I really believe that Trump and his four years and Kushner absolutely set, set, uh, um, send a message, sent a precedent that it, international law does not matter. Uh, that um, human rights, actually he endorsed, uh, you know, committing war crimes and he, he encouraged by, by what happens here domestically has a huge, um, send a huge message about where America is. And I think in order to see how emboldened and how actually the, the annexation policy in the West Bank and elsewhere became the official policy of the United States, when you saw the, the, the ambassador of the United States himself taking a hammer himself, sledgehammer, and basically, you know, um, either who, who contributed to building settlements together with Kushner, donated money to all of these enterprise who, of, of these entities who are trying to expel Palestinian and replace them with Jewish population, whether it's in the West Bank or in East Jerusalem. 
but nobody mentioned actually what happens inside Israel. Most of the demolitions, and I, I was raised in Haifa, and I was born in Haifa, raised between Jerusalem and Haifa. My family still live in Haifa. They're active in, in Haifa, in the theaters, in politics, everywhere. And, and I noticed a shift between 2014 and 2015, and now. In those seven years, the racist laws, which are hundreds, buried the idea that we could exist. The kind of rhetoric that went on inside mainstream uh, parties in Israel went from these are demographic threats to let's behead uh, disloyal Palestinians. That was so normalized that you watch Israeli television sometimes. I remember in all of these years when I would back home, my sister was even used to that kind of language. But I was, I would choke on my own coffee sometimes. I was like, what the hell is going on? I was like, they're clearly inciting against Palestinians. And, and that kind of incitement was not going to disappear. Now you are seeing actually officials in uh, mixed cities, Lid, Ramle, uh, the Galilee, Nazareth, and others of officials summoning these mobs from the West Bank, warning Palestinians, like, don't go out because you're risking your life. You're seeing the police standing by because they consider Palestinians, Israeli citizens, as subject to the law, not as citizens that need to be protected by the law. And you've seen many scenes of that. And the last scene that I saw this morning, a video of a sis my sister sent me, of Palestinian Israeli citizens who are blindfolded and uh, arrested, kidnapped. I've seen this scene in Belarus. I've seen these scenes elsewhere. I've seen it in the occupied territories, but I've never seen this kind of uh, brutality. Uh, and then when you measure this with all the numbers we have, as Aaron said, poverty, discrimination, deportation. And, and you know, I remember also the battle in Imbil Hiran, inside Israel, in the Nagav, inside Israel, all of these areas where, where, where people, especially the Bedouin population, uh, you know, Israel decided, okay, we want this land, we will deport you, we'll, we, you will have to leave this because we will take it. And then immediately after you have some settlement. So Palestinians inside Israel, who actually believe in the Declaration of Independence of Israel, believe that, you know, all men and women uh, should de or deserve equal rights and political equal rights. They believe that if they would channel their, their activism through politics, and they did it multiple times, they, they made the joint list, uh, they elected even 15 people in the last parliament. They even, the most Islamist, the most obviously person that's so far from me, as Aaron said, uh, uh, Mansour was willing to sit with Bibi Netanyahu in government because they decided we want to be within the Israel politics, try to, to change and convinced Israelis mainstream politicians that equality is the only solution, that equality is, is uh, paramount, that we need more investment in education and, and in, in uh, coexistence. And, and we need to be, we want to be treated like Jews. I mean, my sisters and my entire family always tells me, you know, we would like to be treated like Jews because we're citizens somehow. Um, and then the response by, by the government is always either incitement or exclusion or more racist law. And then the last law that was passed, the nation state bill, that actually enshrined their status as an equal, as second state, a second class citizen, that was a turning point. That was when you start seeing people in these cities decided, okay, especially 
some some of the people who already were on the margin of society disenfranchised politically, economically, decided, okay, nobody will protect us. We cannot depend on anybody. We will take the matters in our hands. And this was met by an answer on the other side saying, we will come there to defend uh, the Jewish you know, population in certain areas. And this is when I think most, most cities lost control. Uh, and this is when you see that the answer by the government saying, we will arrest any Palestinian that is participating in the riots, but really three Israelis were arrested compared to 500 Palestinians. And this is when you see the disparity. A big change on the ground there as well as here. Aaron, uh, I can think of a few people who have had as uh, a deep uh, in-depth over, over a period of many years experience with U.S. policy in the region as you, as you look back at how the Biden administration handled it, do you give them a good grade? Do you think they did anything differently or do you think they just went back to the old playbook? You know, I, I don't know where I said it, but I think that um, Biden, the role model here is not Obama, it's Bill Clinton. Uh, Biden and Clinton are longtime pals. They know that being quote unquote good on Israel is not just important, for their careers in politics, or at least it has been. But they all also have a deep sensibility and ideological affinity, affinity with Israel. Um, and I think, or I more or less know, that the administration, I think, made a decision early on that they were going to at least try in the beginning once the, once the rockets more or less uh, took hostage the Palestinian issue, uh, and I think that was Hamas's intention, you had a kind of a David and Goliath reversal, although the power of the Israeli military um, these days is never really, is never really David in, in comparison with, um, with Goliath. So they applied what I call honey in the first week which was to make it unmistakably clear that in the face of, Iraq, of Hamas rockets, uh, the traditional talking points, Israel has a right to defend itself, Hamas indiscriminately rockets Israeli population centers and the IDF at least goes to some length um, to discriminate between, willfully to discriminate between civilian and military tar targets. But then the vinegar came and I think it was the combination of the honey and vinegar, plus the reality that both Hamas and the Israelis, certainly elements within the, within the IDF, uh, began to understand that their the target sets were empty. And neither Hamas nor Israel wanted to um, risk the gains that they had made. So the timing was right. So. Did Biden play a major role in this? Well, if you believe Barack Ravid in Axios, and he was spun pretty well by administration sources, um, they shortened what could have been a conflict that would have dragged on for an additional two weeks. Of that I'm certain. And that held open the possibility of a mass casualty event on either side, an Aaron Harak, uh, Hamas rocket that found a group of Israelis, or alternatively, uh, an, an Aaron Israeli artillery shell like we saw at Kfar Khanna in 1996, which killed 100 Palestinians uh, within an hour. 
So the longer it went on, the greater the danger that this would have taken a, a wicked turn. So yeah, I think the administration, I would have liked to have seen them intercede a few days earlier for any number of reasons. But yeah, I mean, I think if this was their first foreign policy crisis, they shortened its duration. Now, whether or not there's anything here to exploit or waters to ply in the aftermath is another another proposition entirely. So Corey, one additional comment on, on Trump. Ruler raises an interesting point. I, I had a couple of conversations with Jared Kushner and he made it unmistakably clear to me that they were not interested in the two-state solution. These were my words, but it was his concept. They were interested in the 22-state solution. They were, they were going to basically demonstrate, and David Friedman played a role in this, and so did Jared. Um, Friedman as, a bank, as Trump's bankruptcy attorney. If the Palestinians wouldn't come to the table after week one, it'll, it'll be 50 cents on the dollar. If they waited another week, it's going to be 25 cents on the dollar. And if they waited too long, they weren't going to get anything. And I think I've never seen a situation where any administration created a sugar high for the Israelis and literally, figuratively speaking, went to war with the Palestinians, both economically and politically. And I think that shaped on both sides uh, what Biden inherited. Okay. We've got about 10 minutes here. I want to go to Rose and Corey on this and then a very quick question for everybody else. Um, uh, Corey, uh, D Tom Friedman had an article today, I think, or yesterday, in which he said, this is how Joe Biden can win the Nobel Prize in, um, in, in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, something that, that uh, Donald Trump seemed to want very much. Yet I spoke to a lot of very senior officials in this administration. And the thing that I came away with was they don't want to win a Nobel Prize in this. This is not their focus. Their focus is rebuilding America. Their focus is dealing with issues here at home. And they've seen this kind of, you know, Nobel Prize, the lure of, 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 of this big foreign policy victory. Um uh, you know, as a, as a trap for many administrations. I'm just wondering what your take is on that, Corey. Yeah, that sounds right to me, David. I think they, the Biden team uh, really, really doesn't want to be involved in the Middle East. And I can't uh, stress strongly enough that the, their decisions as the violence spiraled conveyed that really clearly, right? The, the, you know, we call on both sides to abjure violence kind of stuff. Um, so you're exactly right. They don't want a Nobel Prize for this. They don't want anything to do with any of the problems of the Middle East. Uh, and I think to their credit, have the discipline to stay out of problems they don't want to be involved in. Um, although uh, Secretary Blinken is going to the Middle East, uh, it sounds like next week, but that's a lot of days late and I think will be a lot of dollars short. Uh, so I think that's right. I don't think to the extent they care about any foreign policy problems, 
Uh, it will be um, immigration on the southern border and how to get uh, Central America stable and secure enough that there aren't enormous flows of refugees and China. And I think that's about the bandwidth they have. Uh, although maybe the outrageousness of the Lukashenko government forcing down a civilian aircraft transiting its airspace to forcibly remove a political dissident and journalist will be enough to make them care about Europe. But, but that's, as they say, a testable hypothesis. Very deftly done. For all of you who are not listening, and no one was listening, prior to the beginning of the podcast, we were talking about the Lukashenko situation and Corey said, oh, we should probably bring that up in the course of the podcast. And lo and behold, there it is. Um, but but it, but it's true. I, Rosa, in some respects, though, I, I, I really get the feeling that, you know, Joe Biden, foreign policy expert with a very, very good foreign policy and national security team would like these issues to be as back burner as possible and probably cringes when a Lukashenko, you know, incident like that or, or this thing in Israel happens. But I, I, I also think that, you know, they, they understand that the United States is better positioned to handle foreign policy issues in an influential and decisive way in the future if we're stronger at home. And that focusing on the domestic issues has a foreign policy consequence as well. Oh yeah, I, I completely agree with Corey. Um, I think we've got enough problems right here at home and the Biden administration is very much hoping that we will have the time and space to focus on those and to and to addressing the, the many pressing problems we, we have here. And frankly, partly it's because as the Biden administration knows very well, we have less global influence than we have four years ago, when in turn we had less global incidents than we global influence than we'd had 10 years previous to that, you know, that the US influence in general has been declining, partly as a result of other other powers rising, which is mostly a very good thing. Um, and under Trump, that influence just, you know, plummeted. Uh, and you don't get that back overnight, you know, that the <laughs> Poor Joe Biden, right? There's no magic wand that you can wave over Israel and Palestine to to solve this problem. It, it it's a it's a horrible mess. They want nothing to do it. If you know, they really would prefer everything to just stay as quiet as possible, so they don't have to think about it. Because they know that number one, there's no simple solution. Period. Number two, the U.S.'s ability to have a positive impact is not nearly as great as it might have been 20 years ago. Uh, and, and I think that goes for virtually all global problems that the US remains an outsized power, but it does not have the ability we may once have thought we had to do things on our own or to just by, by virtue of saying, well, we think such and such to have lots and lots of other countries come along with us. And, and they know that and, and, and US power may be rebuilt if we can address some of our internal problems here at home and over time, but it's not gonna happen overnight. So I think that all that the Biden folks are, are desperately hoping for, <laughs> were hoping for is that they'd get a little bit of a grace period before anything terrible happened in the rest of the world, you know, forcing some kind of action, forcing a, a forcing kind of too early tests. And obviously the world doesn't tend to cooperate with that. And it's, it's not really cooperating with that, but no, I, I'm, I am certain that Corey is right, that they're all thinking, you know, oh my God, you know, please, 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 would all this please just go away without us having to do anything because 
you know, we don't have the bandwidth. We have other priorities right now. Okay, so I've got a chance to ask each one of you a question for which you can give me an answer that's 90 seconds long because of the, 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 the time constraints here. And of course, this is where I ask questions that usually would take a month to answer, but, but you know, do, 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 do your best with this. Um, Rula, uh, on our podcast last week, our guest was Alon Pincus, and he said you can't get Israelis and Palestinians to agree on much. Um, but what they do agree on is that it's all the United States' fault. And, and that, you know, if, if, if you look at this, there's a lot of blame that goes to, you know, to U.S. administrations, one or the other, for reasons or another. But what you've just heard, I think, is true. Just this administration doesn't want to get too deep. It'll get involved. It'll do its thing. It'll have a deputy assistant secretary there. The secretary of state will go there periodically. It's not that it will be uninvolved, but the, the you know the, all the reasons that the U.S. has leaned in in the past. There there are a bunch of them that aren't there right now. What what do you you know what do you think the reaction of that is, you know, in in Israel among Palestinians among Israelis? Well. Clearly, Biden inherited an unmitigated disaster on every level, health, from the health crisis, the economic crisis, to foreign policy crisis. So he's, he's, you know, he's handling after four months, all of these fires trying to put them out. It's, it's, we understand it's not easy. However, the United States, like, let's be clear, it's the only superpower. It's in the world still with a huge army and especially it actually is invested in the Israeli-Palestinian issues. We, we, you know, we have huge leverage over Israel. The, the $4 billion are, are not peanuts. Uh, the influence that Biden himself and, and his administration have over how to uh, address certain issues, even privately, they can use all of that leverage, but they're not using it fully because it has a price you know, domestically. So they have to weigh, what, how can they do it? What's the timing? Except the timing is now. The timing is now because it's, it's what I fear the most. And uh, in 1994, and nobody pays attention to certain trends because once you, you, you pivot to, to focus on other issues, there's certain trend that is taking place. And this is what I fear the most. And this is why I've been predicting for a while. Uh, the trend in Jerusalem, look at that. The trend inside Israel, that's important, but Jerusalem is a place where clearly the extremist wants to uh, carry attacks against the holy sites. If that happens, because they attempted to do that in 1994, they were arrested, given a slap on the wrist, pardoned, late, you know, but now their leaders, their spiritual leaders, their, their, their political leaders are clearly talking about doing something in Haram Sharif or what we call the compound of, of the Holy Mosque. If that happens, God help us all because this conflict will turn into a religious conflict and then you will not have to deal with the Palestinians, you'll have to deal with Erdogan, with Pakistan, with, with Taliban's, and you will have all kinds of fires exploding everywhere. That's why we need to intervene now. The moment is now. And, and on a separate note, but it's equally important, if the United States, with this administration that sets its agenda in foreign policy, saying international uh, rule, uh, rule-based international order, and then you see Lukashenko and MBS, who's our ally, and then you see Bibi committing clear violation of these norms and laws, and we say nothing about it, then it will embolden others to say, okay, 
let me dismiss every international law and norm and, and abuse my people. So it's about setting a precedent. It's about also preventing bigger crises. Uh, thank you, Aaron. So uh, again, so br br brief question, although somewhat complex. Tony Blinken's going to be um, going in the region next week. What's his big ask? Not sure there'll be a big ask. Um, if you look at Biden's statement yesterday as to what this trip is all about, there won't, certainly won't be a big public ask. I mean, they'll want to strengthen Abbas because that's what everybody is telling them to do. Uh, a guy who's weak and feckless and in the 16th year of his four-year term. They'll talk about reconstruction from, uh, uh, for Gaza, trying to navigate a way to uh, allow Hamas not to take credit for the recovery, but not to ignore the dire humanitarian crisis that exists there now. And they'll navigate a fine line between standing by the Israelis and maybe if the reports that Jake Sullivan had pressed Mayor Ben Shabbat, his counterpart and uh, national security advisor on suspending or overturning the Sheikh Jarrah evictions, um, is true, then maybe, just maybe, they'll um, they'll press on some of the trigger issues in and around Jerusalem. I, I just, last comment, David, I I think Corey's, Corey's right. I mean, governing's about choosing. Uh, this man has inherited the greatest challenge of national recovery, argue, arguably any president since Franklin Roosevelt. We have three or four interlock crises that are literally tearing at the economic, public health, social fabric of this country. And Rula, uh, uh, Rula paints a compelling case of the suffering, ignoring of international law and international norms. But I, you know, I, I just have to say, America's house is broken. And I, trying to fix the Israeli-Palestinian problem now, solving Jerusalem border security, refugees, end of conflict and all claims, it simply is impossible. So Biden will make his choice. And I think you're right, David, barring the fact that this goes off in a direction that's qualitatively and quantitatively worse than anything that we have seen in decades, Biden will navigate precisely the line that you have, have identified. And frankly, you know, I'm paying taxes. I think that line is probably the best for the domestic travails that challenge this country right now. Um, okay, Corey, what should the U.S. do about Belarus taking down this plane? Uh, we should lead the effort to find them in violation of their international obligations for safe passage of commercial um, air traffic cleared through their country. We should refuse transportation, air, and every other kind of transportation links and work with other countries. Uh, we should uh, stop anything we are doing that's positive engagement with Belarus until that journalist is released. This is such an outrage um, and hard to imagine. Well, it's easy to imagine Lukashenko being um, reckless enough to have done it without Russian knowledge. But I think we should care about it first and foremost, because uh, we should always care about. Second, uh, other authoritarians are learning from this. And if we do not 
involve ourselves in preventing uh, this kind of outrage, then exactly as Rula said uh, before the before our podcast started, then we're in the age of complete lawlessness. And that's where it also correct, connects to doing nothing about Palestine. Yeah, uh, the no, sense I of impunity that is, uh, that is going around. And the last thing I'll say about Belarus uh, is that the Biden administration has said human rights are gonna be at the middle of American foreign policy. That hasn't proven true in the Palestinian-Israeli crisis. And if we don't uh, start to make good on what we say we care about, it's not gonna be credible. Yeah, by the way, those of you in the Biden administration who are listening to this, Corey's been making this point to you ever since you arrived in office. She has said, folks, this is your petard, you will be ho hoisted on it. Um, and uh, I, think, uh, I, I think there is some evidence to that effect. Um, Rosa, just sort of taking this last question a step further in the last minute or two that we've got here, it was announced uh, that uh, looks like President Biden's going to go and meet with uh, President Putin in a, in, a, in a few weeks in Geneva. Um, Lukashenko didn't do this on his own. He doesn't do stuff like this on his own. This is a Putin, well, probably not. Corey's making a face at me, but probably not. Um, uh, my guess is the, the, the Belarus doesn't have the, the resources to have done some of what was done here and they may have been helped. Um, how, how should, how should an issue like this, uh, impact the Biden Putin talk? Well, number one, we do need to find out what, if any, involvement the Russians did have in this. I, I'm, I'm not actually sure that Belarus couldn't have done it on its own. Um, I'm also not, I think, I think if Belarus did do it on its own, Putin will be happy to, you know, cut off the branch they're on. And even if they did it with Russian support and acquiescence, Putin will still be happy to make them a sacrificial lamb. He doesn't care. Um, you know, he's happy to see them, you know, poke sticks at the rest of the international community, but I don't think he wants to make it his problem any more than Biden wants to make Israel and Palestine his problem. Um, so I don't actually think that Lukashenko is going to find a lot of strong support from Putin regardless. Um, I, you know, I, and I, so, I, so I, I'm not sure what Biden should say about this because I think it depends on what we find out between now and then. Um, but but I, I do think that, you know, in general, I'm not a huge fan of international sanctions unless they're extremely targeted, ones that will affect entire populations. Uh, their record is obviously mixed and they can end up hurting the very people they're trying to help. But it does look at this point uh, as though, and this was similar to the situation in South Africa uh, during the uh, waiting days of the apartheid era, it does look as though many in, in the Belarusian opposition themselves are saying, hey, uh, international airlines should not land here, they should not fly over here. Uh, hey, cut us off from the SWIFT uh, international money transfer system. Let's let's raise the price uh, on Lukashenko for doing these things. And even if that has an impact on all of us, it is worth it because right now, you know, he is not feeling the pain enough. And this is something where concerted action from the international community could certainly inflict a good deal of, of economic pain on Lukashenko. Yes, it would, it would also impact other Belarusians, but I think this may be one of those rare situations where when you have enough people in the affected community saying, go ahead, this is the only thing that will help, uh, it's time to listen. 
Definitely time to listen. Definitely a good time to let the Europeans take the lead on some of this, which they have been doing. But it's certainly something we will be following. Um, you know, I'm very happy. You know, we're, we're a couple of weeks away from the fourth anniversary of of of, of launching Deep State Radio. Uh, well, is that even possible? It's, yeah, no. And, Corey and I are both only 28 years old, so I'm not. Actually well, you sure were very young right. when we started this, and no. unchanged to this day. But 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 I have to say, you know, regularly throughout that period, regularly recently, if you go and look at lists of top foreign policy and national security podcasts, we're on it. And the reason is smart people who know what they're talking about uh, and who aren't afraid to speak the truth. And the, listening to the four of you guys, I think that's exactly what we got. So I want to thank you very much, Rula, for joining us. I want to thank you, Aaron, thank you. for joining us, obviously, every single week. I want to thank Corey and Rosa for joining us. Uh, come back soon. Uh, tomorrow we're doing a podcast. Uh, Ed Luce and I will be doing a conversation with uh, Richard Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations. We'll touch upon some of these issues. Uh, and um, uh, we've got more coming the rest of the week. You'll find it at the dsrnetwork.com. If you're there and you click membership, you can also become a member and help support what we're doing. We hope you'll do that. So in the interim, thanks very much to everybody. Uh, for uh, joining us. Join us again soon and stay healthy out there. Bye-bye.